Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph and GP of Flex Capital. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Eric Torenberg. Eric is a partner and co-founder at Village Global. He's also the author of a super excellent Substack, which I'm a big subscriber of, and co-host of Moment of Zen podcasts, along with many others. Eric is also the founder and chairman of OnDeck. Eric, welcome to World of Dance. Oren, thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the show and excited to be on. I'm excited as well. Now, you wrote a super piece on Substack called Reconsidering Career Optionality. Why do you think optionality is so overrated? Well, I think that people misunderstand what optionality actually is because we're not good at sort of pricing risk, either in a macro or micro context. I think when people think of optionality, it's because they're afraid to make hard decisions. And so they say things like, I don't know what I'll do with my life, so I'll get a degree. I don't know what I'll do with my degree, so I'll get a grad degree or get an MBA. I don't know what I'll do with this MBA, so I'll go into consulting or finance or some safe fang company to figure out what I want to do. And I think the biggest challenge of pursuing optionality is that it prevents you from taking risks. And so in focusing so much to acquire options to cap your downside, you also cap your upside by being too comfortable to take risks, both lifestyle-wise and reputationally. There's this great tweet that this woman, Julie Young, made a long time ago that said, I don't know one successful person who didn't look dumb for some period of time. And when you focus on pursuing optionality, you are less likely to look dumb. If your end goal, let's say, is to be a founder, to start a company, the biggest risk is not that you won't get the right training by going to work at Facebook or something. It's that you don't take enough shots on goal because most successful founders a lot aren't successful right on the first try. It takes a few shots on goal. The last thing I'll say here is that people really misunderestimate the risk of failure. Does anyone remember Ning, Mark Andreessen's social network? Does anyone remember what is it called? Social net, Reed Hoffman's dating site? You're remembered for your wins, not for your losses, but you need to take enough shots on goal such that you can have a chance to get some wins. And also the downside, the losses aren't so big. It's not like you're going to go to jail or even have to pay back the investors yourself or something like that. The downside is you learn probably way more than you would learn from getting an MBA. Exactly. People think, oh, if you start a company and you fail, you're done. That's a negative blemish on your your reputation, whereas actually you're more respected. You've built a stronger network. So, So my career replacement framework instead of pursuing optionality is to pursue asymmetric upside, which is this idea that pursuing an opportunity that has the chance of being a mega outcome for you, but if it doesn't work out, is actually a pretty great experience. And I'll say that Product Hunt was that for me. I was at Product Hunt. Product Hunt was the startup of the year in 2014. People thought it was gonna be this unicorn, and it totally was not. It was not even a big financial outcome at all, but it was this amazing opportunity to build such a strong network, such a strong community, and people really respect Product Hunt, even though it wasn't this massive outcome. And that has generated so much more career opportunities for me than going to Princeton or some great university or working at Goldman Sachs. And it would have been harder for me to have gotten into Princeton or Goldman Sachs, and I would have had to work a lot harder (laughs) at Princeton and Goldman Sachs to be successful. When you pursue things that not a lot of people are doing, there's less competition and more opportunities to stand out and shine, and people respect that. One of the things I see with smart people is they pass the marshmallow test, so they're all about delaying gratification. And so they work on something that they don't really like, 
they're not that interested in, but they think it's a good thing for them to do. And I think for many of them, they think they're optimizing the long term, but really they're optimizing the midterm. They're not having fun with what they're doing. They think it's going to help them make partner at a law firm or something like that, but they're not really optimizing the long term piece. Totally. And there's some subtle ways as well in which they're not optimizing the long term, which is they're putting themselves in peer groups of people they might not want to be like or might not want to end up. Now, if you want to be a partner at one of these firms, then you should go work at the firm and be around these people. Yeah, absolutely. Nothing wrong with that. Totally. And that's great. They do well and have good lives probably. But if you want to be a founder or be successful in some other field and you put yourself around people who are not going to pursue that path, it's going to be so much harder for you to go out and pursue that path. And that's why if you want to be a founder, go join other people who also either are founders or want to be founders. And that momentum is going to carry you. As David Brooks once said, it's far easier to change your environment than your insides. And we often will calibrate ourselves or morph ourselves to match our environment or what our environment respects. It seems like people, when they're kind of optimized for optionality, they're doing things because they think it will help them a lot in the future. Not necessarily because for the pure enjoyment of that or for whatever it might be, this is going to be something important. Partially, especially people growing up, let's say in the last 40 years or something like that, to get into college, you had to do all these things that everyone expected you to do. You had to go play on a specific sports team. You had to study these types of things and even have to go, I don't know, to Costa Rica to help the turtles or something. (laughs) <laughs> and, and it just became this thing where there's this path that everyone knows and you just follow the path. Do you think that is part of it or is it something endemic in our culture? Because it seems like it's happening mostly to the smartest people. You would think these things would not afflict the brightest, highest IQ people. I think it is part of a checkbox culture that we've been raised in. In order to get to the best colleges, you have to look smart along the way. But in order to build a massive company, sometimes you have to look dumb along the way. So it really is a different skill set. And then it's also people wanting to look smart to the broader public, to their parents, to people who can really recognize what these credentials mean. It's also the propaganda that these big firms play, which is, hey, we have unique skills that you will learn here that will help you be a better founder or whatever it is you want to do better than actually doing the founding or that sort of thing, which I think is not quite true, although there are some valuable skills that are learned. I think one example of optionality that people might not properly respect, but that worked out for a tremendous amount of people was getting into crypto in 2014 or 2015 or 2016 or 2017 even. Whereas I'll take someone like Kal Samani. Kal Samani, who started Multicoin, one of the early crypto firms. At the time, I think he was unemployed. He was early in his career and he was taking this big bet. Now, fascinating thing about crypto was this thing where, hey, if it worked out, there was a lot of money to be made. And for people who did work out, they made a lot of money. But there's so many people who got so rich and they failed. It's so fascinating. Like how many fields are there where you can become worth hundreds of millions or more and your company failed, but you just owned enough of the currency that the field operates in? What was the cost? The biggest cost was just looking stupid. It was looking dumb. I think that's a good question to ask in general is what are things I can pursue that look dumb to a set of people, but look smart to another set of people. And those are the people that I respect, but there's asymmetric upside. If it works, it's going to be absolutely massive. Part of optionality is you think of extreme optionality would be doing things like delaying marriage, delaying having kids. Those are ways to really increase your optionality 
and you see them in the same cohort of people, they're often following that in their personal life, not just in their work life as well. One of your end questions for every show is, what's bad advice that people say that I disagree with? And I have two bits, but I'll bring one of them now. One of them is that making commitments actually expands optionality in some ways. David Brooks says, what you chain yourself to sets you free. So my recommendations would be consider picking your career early, consider picking your partner early, consider picking your best friends early, because once you have those solidified, one, everything great compounds. So you get to compound those relationships and skills and opportunities. But two, you no longer have to search for it. How much time do people spend searching for their partner, dating hundreds of people, going on apps? And so you can use that time to do all sorts of other noble pursuits with the people you've committed to and otherwise. Now, you've also written a lot on the idea of elites and elitism in society. How would you define an elite? Elite is used in different ways. The way I think about it is actually David Sachs' formulation of one-third of the country goes to college. Two-thirds of the country does not go to college. The biggest polarization in this country is whether you went to college or not in terms of the views that you're likely to have. For your college, really, your work you're talking about. And so when I'm talking about elites, I'm usually referring to college graduates, and usually college graduates of good schools. Okay, so you're basically defining it fairly broadly, like a whole third of the population or something like that. Yes, and maybe 80% of people who went to college. So it's not all of them. A majority of people who went to college who have a certain view set that actually does not represent the country, and yet they dominate the institutions that claim to represent the country and set up, impose a set of values onto the country. At least in the U.S., there does seem like there's a real bifurcation in society. If you go to a wedding from somebody who graduated from college, there'll be almost nobody who didn't graduate from college at that wedding, except for maybe the crazy entrepreneur, but at least who, who didn't go to get into a four-year school or something like that. And vice versa is true as well. It seems like these societies sometimes don't even talk to one another. There's this great book called Coming Apart. Yeah, great book. Love that book. That says, hey, didn't used to be like this. There used to be much more similarity among the different classes. But what happened over time is that we had a few things. One is we became more meritocratic in the sense that colleges were able to more precisely identify talent. Now, there's some ways we're becoming less meritocratic, which we could talk about. But colleges basically sorted talent on IQ and conscientiousness, those people then married each other, which further divided people. And then they moved to the same locations, moved other people out. And so the US just became much more sorted on IQ and conscientiousness, and then on wealth. And that just compounds over time. Even if you go to the public school in many neighborhoods, almost 100% of the parents went to a four-year college or something which is really interesting. Now, you have this piece of, you, where you talk about the hypocrisy of the elites, which I really love. Can you break that down a bit? Sure. So the hypocrisy of the elites is this idea that elites espouse a certain set of views and a certain set of policies that they themselves are insulated from. Or don't even follow or something. Yes, insulated from or don't even follow or follow the opposite. I'll give you a bunch of examples. Defund the police was largely, during the George Floyd protests in 2020, was largely elite phenomenon. It was largely people who went to college. College-educated. Yes, college-educated white people, mostly, who were saying that. And yet, it was that same group of people themselves that do not live in areas where there are low police. They live in areas where there's the highest amount of police, maybe even gated communities that have private security. 
and also maybe at low crime. So maybe the police are not as important in the neighborhoods that they live in. Yes. Another hypocrisy is that Rob Henderson quotes a study where he says that the richest people are most likely to say that success is about luck as opposed to lower income people are more likely to say success is about hard work. But who works the hardest? It's the richest people, probably. It's this affluent people broadcasting the values that they think will really be successful to their own kids, but a different set of values. To- and they're pushing their kids to a crazy extent with the quote unquote elites seem like they're pushing their kids way more than elites were in the past. Totally. Helicoptering them, getting them to work these crazy hours, play 17 sports and do all this other stuff today. And then it gets more cultural. Things like elites promoting body positivity, the idea that being overweight might be fine or healthy, yet they themselves work out the most and maintain perfect health or most obsessed with their health. Like Al Gore talking most about climate and yet flying on his private jet. So it's all sorts of cultural. I, I imagine elites also have extremely high rates of marriage, lower rates of divorce, those types of things. Yes. And so that's on an individual level. And then on a macro level, Harvard is a perfect example where they consider themselves on the forefront of promoting egalitarianism and social progress and uplifting the downtrodden. And yet they themselves, perhaps the most exclusive organization on the planet in the sense that everyone would love to send their kid to Harvard. And they have this massive endowment. They could afford increasing the student population by 5x or 10x. Yeah, it's certainly at least double. That would be no problem. And yet they don't do it because they're not really about including the people that, that want to go to that. That's not their main goal, even though that's a value that they claim to spout. So those are just some examples of the hypocrisy of this class. I describe it, talk left, act right, talk a big game about inclusivity or egalitarianism, and yet act in a way that's much more cutthroat and out for themselves. Interesting. Well, the humans are hypocrites in general. I've never (laughs) met someone that isn't a complete hypocrite. That's who we are. It's not super surprised that that's the case. Yes, exactly. You're also a big proponent of startups in general. You think more people should do a startup. Is there some sort of way in the water we get more people to do that? So yes, I think more people should pursue startups. One, because it's a way to solve some of our biggest problems. Governments used to address big problems, but for lots of different reasons, whether it's talent migration or whether it's institutional sclerosis, a lot of the problems like space exploration or defense that used to be progressed by the government are now progressed by startups. And by used to, you're really talking about from 1940 to 1980 or something like a very brief moment of time when government did that. Yes. And even the problems that people care most about, whether it's education or healthcare or housing, or a lot of these innovations are going to come from startups. And so more people should pursue startups. And then in terms of why don't they, there are a number of bottlenecks. So part of it is cultural. And my friends at Entrepreneur First or our, our friends at Entrepreneur First are trying to create a rising culture of ambition in countries outside the US. They're creating a track like McKinsey, so it's easy for people to go into. They're trying to raise the status of entrepreneurs. And I think we've done a great job of that in Silicon Valley. And that's why it's less risky to pursue a startup. I spent three years of my life working on a startup that had rap battles on the internet. That's a pretty silly idea. And that's a long time to spend in my early 30s. But that built me such a strong network and people respected it. Raising the status is one thing. I think the other thing that's challenging is the diversification perspective. So yeah, you build this network, but more people are probably willing to cap their upside if they can cap their downside. So more people would probably rather be venture capitalists than founders. 
even on just an economic level, put aside the lifestyle, because venture capitalists guaranteed get rich. And so I wonder if there is some way of doing that on the founder side as well. People have been talking about equity pooling among startups forever. I actually think that's a pretty interesting idea. Some worry that, hey, if you need to have it all on the line and risk being poor to be a founder, I think there's some room to play there by being a founder. And some people do this by making their founders scouts and things like that. If they can get a little bit more diversification, I think you would see more people starting companies. And you think this idea only the bad founders are going to do it or something like that. The future Mark Zuckerberg's would never, you'd never do this. You hear this all the time with this equity pooling. You think it's just a bunch of baloney? I think the best founders are also economically rational to some degree. Yeah, but they have a sense, hey, I have a 70% chance of failing or something. Yeah, they might think their chances are higher than other people of being successful, but even they understand that they could fail. (laughs) And if they could take a small percentage of their equity and diversify it among a pool of founders in their caliber set, let's say you're a Sequoia-backed founder and you do this pool with other Sequoia-backed founders at a similar age, I think that makes sense. Another way of doing it is just giving them scout programs. And that's something we've done at Village Global with some of our founders is allowing them to be investors. You're getting diversification on that level. So I think there are different ways of doing it. And I think the best founders are economically rational, even if they highly rate their chances of being successful more than others. Yeah. And it shows, by the way, because most of the best founders that we've seen, they've done a secondary in their own company. So they took, even if their company is super successful and it was going to continue to be super successful, they took something off the table. So it shows that they're actually very economically rational and they have some sort of sense of putting something in the bank down. Yeah. I wrote this post last week about Giannis Antetokounmpo, this NBA player for the Milwaukee Bucks, who when he lost the series to the Miami Heat in the playoffs, it asked if it was a failure. And he said, no, it's not a failure. It's just steps to success. And what I found so interesting about that was that if they had asked him before the series, if you had lost the series, will it be a failure? And he would say, yeah. Of course, he would have said, yeah, he has to convince himself that otherwise he wouldn't play so hard. And so what I say is deterministic mindset when you're a founder or when you're all in on something, when you're still in the game, probabilistic mindset when you're out of the game, when you're an investor. And so I think similarly, there's this thing here, when you're a founder, you need to signal that you're freaking all in on this thing. This thing can't fail. You're not hedging at all. But I think in reality, if you could hedge 1% or something very small, where you're still like, hey, 98% or 95%, you're basically all in, but you've just hedged a little bit, I think is rational for most people. We were very interested in this idea of investing in people. You and I have had many conversations over the years about these ISAs, these income share agreements, and stuff like that. They haven't really taken off. People have been talking about them for a really long time. What do you think is needed for ISAs to really become a thing? Or do you think you need a whole new innovation? Or do you think we need new laws? Or what's holding it back? Charlie Munger famously said, show me the incentives. I'll show you the outcome. And I've, I've been obsessed with how could you further align people on a common mission? Isn't that what the joint stock corporation did? By allowing employees to have equity in companies, you thus were able to get so many more people bought in on a mission and going all in on the mission so that when a company like Facebook you know, goes public, it's not just the owners or Zuckerberg who gets wealthy, it's thousands of employees. And thus you're able to harness the best talent globally to focus on a mission. That's incredible. And what crypto introduced ideologically is this idea of, hey, what if it's not just employees who got upside, but what if your customers or users 
gut upside. In fact, maybe there's a way to compete with these network effects businesses where you could be a user of a new social media product or marketplace and you're providing value to this marketplace and that's you get compensated for it. And so I've been obsessed with this idea of incentive alignment, reasons it has not been taken off or reasons it has not taken off. I think legal is a huge one. Looks like we are taxing in there as well. In fact, I think that's what a lot of people are excited about crypto is actually legal arbitrage. <laughs> yeah, like a DAO or something. Or legal innovation. I think that's the biggest barrier, in my opinion, from even just more experimentation here. I think there are some companies who've tried ISAs, who've actually found the darker incentives. Whereas I know a bootcamp who offered free education in exchange for ISA in the future and incentivized a few students to get the education and then complained so much that the education was bad that the school said, hey, you don't have to pay it anymore. And so there's some weird incentives that happen with that. But broadly, I think once we can get some legal workarounds, people are going to experiment with all sorts of ideas, say, hey, let's say we're 10 buddies, we just graduated college together, and we want to bet on each other. And let's get pool. Let's pool our opportunities and stay connected and stay close to that. Or you, Oren, you discover this person right out of college and you want to mentor them, but you also want to make it worth your while. They don't have a company yet. Maybe you can get some upside in their next few years in exchange for giving them their break. And this idea of almost Kickstarter for people, we have a massive student debt crisis in this country and debt that cripples them. You can't even discharge it in bankruptcy. And yet how much more liquidity or capital could we bring to people and opportunities to people? Because it's not just the capital, it's also the incentive to care about these people who you don't even know, investing in people in the same way that angel investing enables so much more cooperation, collaboration, and help from world-class CEOs and advisors such as yourself, because there's some economic upside, but also a special relationship that forms when you're on the cap table of a company. If we get money involved in all these relationships in a way, in some ways, I think it could be a feature, as you say, but it could be a bug, too. You could have these weird things. Like today, it is often in relationships in a weird way. You help people out with the expectation that somehow that karma is going to get back to you. It's not like purely altruistic often today, even though you're not directly making money off this person. Maybe this unstated that it could come back to you, it, it's good to have this ambiguity where if there's a direct, oh, you're calling me for help? Am I an investor in you? Well, hold on, hold on. What's the price? Can I just get in right now at the low price? Then I'll help you? Or how do you think that will move forward? Yeah, economic relationships have the power to advance personal relationships when things are going well and people are happy and they have the right mindset about it. But they also have the opportunity to really complicate relationships and there is something sacred. I wouldn't want my mom to have uh, economic upside in me such that I feel like Well, I'm... in that case, she does. So that is different. <laughs> she actually does. I have a direct economic upside in my kids and I have a direct economic upside in my spouse and even in my siblings in some ways, if they have do better, like maybe I'll go on better vacations or something. There are those types of things you're, if you're closest friend, you're really talking about the more of the acquaintance type of person. I guess I would say, I don't want a ticker that rises up and down every day. Good point. Yeah. You don't want to know how you're doing. <laughs> yeah. That's part of your wealth manager portfolio or something. Have your mom in there. Another complication, there's this book, The Unincorporated Man, which is a book of science fiction that imagines a world where everyone has upside in each other. Where it gets really complicated there is on the governance side, where if people have economic upside, do they start making recommendations? Do they start having control of your life? And so 
yeah, things can get really complicated. People have to have the right expectations going into it. It takes a certain level of maturity. Introduces more variance for sure. And there is something sacred about a relationship that doesn't have economics in, or it can be something sacred about a relationship that doesn't have economics in. Yeah, it's interesting for certain, let's say, government roles or something. You have to liquidate your entire stock portfolio because you don't want to have even a very, very small interest in some sort of company that you might be engaging with or something. But if you have this portfolio of people, some of which you might be working with in the government, you do have odd incentive to favor certain people over others. It'd be very interesting. And today, maybe you only have that with your family, either a nepotistic thing, whereas you can imagine a scenario where you have a much bigger portfolio of people. Well, it's funny because the East Coast mindset is conflict of interest, but the West Coast mindset is skin in the game. Yeah, or no conflict, no interest. Exactly. If you send me something and I'm like, wait, you're not invested in this company or this person? Why are you even sending this to me? You don't even believe it. Your reputation is not credible. Whereas the East Coast mindset is if you are involved, you must be promoting only because you're financially incentivized. Whereas the West Coast is, oh, you believe in it. That's why you did it. That's right. Yeah. I believe in this person so much that I invested. Now, you've also written a lot about concept of like a personal mode, some specific skill set that you can develop an advantage in. How do you think about this in the world of AI? In general, I recommend thinking about careers in the same way you think about products and companies and this idea of what makes a product or a company have a sustainable, durable advantage similarly to personal moat to your career. Naval has this framework around what's easy for you to do, but hard for others, looks hard for others as a way to think about where your personal moat could be. And usually it's some combination of some unique expertise some unique skill set, some unique set of relationships, and maybe the combination of those. I'm a pretty good community builder, but I think I'm world-class at community building for founders. So the more specific, the better. And when I do these personal moat exercises, I'll ask people, what's their personal moat? And they might say something like, I'm good at operations. And then I'll say, hey, where are you ranked in the world in your personal moat? And the more narrow the personal moat is, the higher you'll be ranked in that. And this, the higher you're ranked, the more leverage you have on your time, the more people will pay you, the more people want to work with you, et cetera. So that's the idea. If you think of this Venn diagram, this overlapping Venn diagram, where you become the number one in that overlapping Venn diagram of things, you're not just number one in that overlapping Venn diagram. Those things together could really lead to great achievements. Let's say you're a pretty good software developer. You're top 10%, but not the number one software developer you're really into marine biology or something. Again, not anywhere close to number one, but you're in the top 10% of people who are really interested in marine biology. But you put those together, okay, you're number one in that cross. But because of that, you understand how dolphins communicate in a super interesting way. And that allows you to develop this incredibly new technology or something. Totally. To ask what is AI do to personal moats, I think it's worth just reflecting on what technology does to personal moats, which is, I think it really creates this barbell where being the best just matters so much more. So let's use an example. Let's say you're Taylor Swift and you're in the 1500s. Are you the best musician of the era? But what can you really do? Recorded music doesn't exist. So everyone just listens to it live. If you're Taylor Swift, you can't reach that many people. And so there's just a much more flat distribution of musicians. And then what happens with recorded music is you get to say, hey, I get to listen to the best musician possible. I don't have to listen to the person in my town. I can listen to Taylor Swift. So now if you're the best, and especially when the internet comes, you can reach everybody 
And the person who used to play in that town is not just competing with people in that town, it's competing with every musician. Benefits of being the best drastically increase. And if you're the middle class, you're no longer performing for money, at least in the same way. Although because discovery is so much easier, there's also this barbell where there's a super long tail and the hits get bigger, the long tail gets bigger, the middle shrinks. It feels like that happens in every industry where there's a free market and free distribution and it isn't regulated by the government. And so I suspect that AI will only increase that. Whereas if you're the Taylor Swift, now AI can create remixes of your content and we're already starting to do that in other fields. And so now people aren't limited by their time as much because AI can extend their content and their time. And so I think it becomes even more important to be the best. But then also with AI, depending how far we go, you're also competing with the AI. And so if you're the best chess player and AI can beat you in chess so easily, I don't know, is it as valuable to be the best chess player? Maybe people still value human chess and that's really important. But those are a couple of things that come to mind. I'm curious, how would you answer the same question? Well, I guess the question is also, it might be harder to figure out what you should try to be number one in. Because being the number one singer is extremely hard. And there probably is some sort of luck involved. Being the number one basketball player, well, for certain people, they just probably know at age seven that that's never going to happen. So how do you pick that Venn diagram overlap, as you mentioned, the community build or in startups or something? that can still also be valuable and survive the onslaught of AI. It used to be people would say, hey, be great at either something creative or something caring, because AI is not going to be able to do that. <laughs> and it turns out that's the first thing it is able to do. One thing that's really going to be more important in the age of AI is trust and brand, because there's going to be so much explosions of content. You don't know what's true. You don't know what's real. You don't know who made what. Being able to have a trusted, strong brand is going to be immensely important. And so being able to dominate a niche, build credibility with that niche, be public with that niche, be transparent with the niche, and be consistent within that niche is going to be increasingly important. That's a little vague and not every niche is going to matter in the same way. Sometimes it's hard to know in the same way we didn't know caring and creative fields were going to be the first to be disrupted like we're seeing with the writer's strike. That's one broad principle, which is, and Naval talks about this, be publicly accountable. Put yourself out there, build trust, build consistency, and build a reputation. Speaking of Naval, there's this different archetypes of founders. There's, you call it the near of the Naval, the insider, the outsider, and you see people who are super successful in both of those things. How do you think it through? How do you understand the dynamics of these types of people? I love this piece. I think you created a really strong conversation. I've been thinking about this piece a lot since you wrote it. Here's a question that will help set up my follow-up. Nirav and Naval, what does that comparison give you that Peter Thiel versus Reed Hoffman doesn't give you? Yeah, so Peter is much more the outsider. Reed is much more the insider. They're actually really good friends. They can still like have deep respect for one another. And then they both have a little bit of the outsider has a little bit of the insider. The insider has a little bit of the outsider. It's not like they're 100% on the extreme. You see a lot of these pairs over time. And so is the crux of the difference that the outsider is willing to look dumb or go against the establishment? It's like anti-institutionalists build something new versus reshape an existing institution. Or what do you think is the main crux of the difference? I think it's safer to be an insider. And certainly, as you mentioned, if you think of the VC versus the entrepreneur, most of the VCs tend to be insiders with a few exceptions. They're much more likely to be wealthy and be respected and stuff like that. Obviously, the extreme entrepreneurs are even more wealthy and even more respected, but it's pretty rare. So you have that. And then even outsiders, they often raise their kids to be insiders. 
So you have to a pot for C that could even happen in their own family. Totally. And so implicit in this idea of insiders and outsiders is this overarching power structure that you know includes universities, the best universities includes media, the best media like the New York Times, includes being favorable within the cultural values and institutions that are created and adjacent to that. And so insiders rise up within those institutions. They're friendly to those cultural values. They're seen as good people, whereas outsiders are willing to take bets that are maybe outside of those cultural values or policy recommendations, and they're willing to be seen as either dumb or potentially bad. I like Peter Thiel and Reid Hoffman as an example, just because I'm more familiar with it. You have, hey, they went to the same school. They were really close friends. They worked at PayPal together. And Peter then became much more contrarian over time, doing things that irked people like starting Palantir or supporting Donald Trump was the biggest one or fighting the media, taking down Gawker. Whereas Reid Hoffman has been a friend to you know all media. He's been a friend to DNC, Democratic Party. And so they are seen as very different ways. Here's what I think about it. I think in the same way there's founder market fit, there's also personality career fit. And so Reid Hoffman, he's a likable guy. He's an agreeable guy. He's a unifier. He wants to bring people together. And so a personality like that is a perfect personality to start LinkedIn, to get the whole world on one professional platform. You need to be an insider. You need to be someone willing to bring people together. Now, Peter Thiel, I don't know him as well as you do, but he's more focused, I feel, on pursuit of truth, on pursuit of what's right. And sometimes contrarians actually enjoy being a bit contrarian. It's just their personality to care about facts more than someone's perception of facts or feelings of facts. And so if you have the ability or even the interest of being a contrarian, you're better off taking contrarian bets, asymmetric upside bets, willing to look dumb, willing to look bad. And supporting Trump was a pretty asymmetric bet that gave him a tremendous amount of political capital. And he had a 50% chance of winning, or, or maybe it was less at the time, but and other bets too. Now, it's worth noting that Reed has made some outsider bets where it counts in terms of he was early to crypto, he's early to AI. And so he tries to really bridge these and he takes outsider bets in economic ways as well. Whereas Peter, he's an outsider and yet he's built and funded some major institutions that work with government, Palantir and Andrew, and he's developed a lot of political power. So he's risen up within the world as well. And so what I think about insiders and outsiders is I think a lot of it is personality and personality career fit. Balaji calls this social supply chain. Joe Lonsdale can be overtly right-wing because he has every step of his supply chain, i.e. his customers, i.e. founders, his LPs, he is aligned with that. And so he has aligned with his entire supply chain in a way that someone else who doesn't have those same customers or doesn't have those same investors doesn't have the luxury of being. So one, I think it's understanding your personality. And then two, it's creating a supply chain or social network of people who will align with that personality so that you're better set up for success. In the personality front, let's say you're an ambitious person, certain types of personalities can do well, rise up through institutions and certain types of personalities, even though they're very ambitious and very smart, would never be successful doing that. And they have no choice but to go outside the institutions because they're just not that type of, you mentioned, more agreeable person to work well within those. If you're an outsider and you're going to not go up the main path, I think working in fields where there is higher variance, it's like you want to do something your competitors won't do. So if you're an outsider, you want to do something insiders can't do. And so taking bets on crypto super early when it looks dumb, as an example, or supporting a candidate that people may not like, I think the more high variance bets you can take as an outsider of things that insiders won't do, the better. And similarly, if you're an insider, if you have an insider personality, 
doing things that outsiders can't do. It's really hard to build a set of relationships in government or healthcare or other things that are highly regulated. You need to be really run by the book and a strong insider to do that. That's an unfair advantage. You've become kind of a public intellectual and philosopher, and I've known you for many, many years. I've seen this evolution over time. It seems like you're not the only one who's evolved into becoming more of this public intellectual. Why do you think it's, I wouldn't say common, but why do you think it's not a crazily uncommon thing in tech? I'm just a curious person. I'm certainly an amateur intellectual, but I'm obsessed with learning. Here's why it's become a more common thing in tech, because a couple decades ago or a decade ago, you could just build your tech company and focus on the product and the team and the business. And what happened in the last decade is tech just got so big. I mean, software at the world or software is eating the world. And thus, you're not in a silo anymore. If you're Facebook, you're dealing not just with the product and the business, you're dealing with politics every day. You're dealing with moral questions. And so I think tech has been really bad in the last decade at having moral justification or being able to address these moral questions or these political questions. And politics is morality. Our public morality today is not religion, it's politics. And so when you're asked, hey, why is everything so political? It's because one, tech is just so powerful, it's impacting everything. And two, different people have different ideas of how those things should be run. And those come to a head every single day. And so if you say, why are you interested in philosophy? Well, philosophy is politics and morals. Philosophy is morals, but zoomed out more abstraction. And so one, I think people in tech have had to become interested in politics and philosophy to run their companies better. But then two, I think tech people have more power than they did a couple decades ago and also get to have a say in how things should be run. Philosophy is a foundation to help take stabs at some of these critical questions. You also host a bunch of really great podcasts, venture stories, similar to Zen, Exec, Big Ideas, Cognitive Revolution, all these different things out there. Why are you spending so much time on these podcasts? You're building out a podcast company. Why is that such an interesting thing for you to spend time on? A few reasons. So first off, I think venture capital in general has become much more commodified and much more competitive. And in order to really do a good job, you need to have an unfair advantage. And I got into angel investing while I was at Product Hunt. And I discovered the benefits of an unfair advantage in terms of, oh, I could give startups distribution. I can get them customers. Now I'm getting the best startups to come take my capital. And I wanted to have more of these unfair advantages, things that help startups in a productized way with their biggest challenges. What are the biggest challenges? Getting customers, hiring people. And so after Product Hunt, I created OnDeck that helped people find early co-founders, early hires. And so I'm interested in creating more of these unfair advantages. You look at people like Packy McCormick or Harry Stebbing, Lenny Ruchitsky, who've become these successful investors without rising the ranks of working at a venture capital firm. They built distribution because startups need distribution, startups need customers. So I'm building a media company. It's called Turpentine. And one of the reasons is because I want distribution and also niche distribution. Lenny has done for products for product managers and what Harry has done for venture capitalists, I believe will exist for every niche, every buyer, for every sector. The future of media is much more niche as the world just gets more specialized. And so I'm interested in creating these niche business media properties. Now, podcasting is the first format I've chosen because I think it's tremendously underserved. Some people might say, oh, aren't we late in podcasting? Podcasts have existed forever. I think the best podcasts do not exist yet. As evidence of this, I would say, Hey, All In's the number one tech podcast. It just started during the pandemic. Andrew Huberman, I think, was the number one podcast in the world. It just started in 2021. I bet if you look at the top 50 right now in tech in 2023 versus in 2026, 
it's going to look very different. And it's because podcasting has just been too high friction for people to do. David Sachs, Tramath, Friedberg, if Jason Calacanis wasn't doing all the ops, they would have never started this. Also, they're already outside of massive distribution. They're, they have a gazillion followers between them already on Twitter, and et cetera. They're already very well-known folks. For a lot of people, even with good products, there are some podcasts I listen to, which I think are excellent, that maybe don't have a ton of listeners because it's hard to find out about them. You find out slowly through word of mouth, I presume, mostly. Or maybe cross-promotion between these podcasts. Podcast discovery is hard. So I'm also making a bet that that's going to improve. The, the analytics are terrible. Discovery is terrible. But I think we're the early innings of podcasts. Both of the technologies that doesn't exist yet. I don't even think you can run ads for a podcast on Apple. You can do it on Overcast and other things, but otherwise it's absolutely terrible. But because it's terrible, podcast listeners are far more loyal. So once you get them, you get them for a long time. The best way is cross-promotion with other podcasts. And that's why we're creating a network to be able to do that. And also automate logistics so that the busiest people who have the most expertise and big audience can now have shows. And if you think about it, the people who have knowledge in this world will never write a book. People with the most knowledge are too busy to write blog posts even sometimes, but they'll do interviews. The lowest friction way of transmitting knowledge I see as interviews and podcasts is capturing what Sam Obergia calls intellectual dark matter, i.e. information that's in people's heads that <laughs> doesn't exist in the internet yet. You know, I've learned a lot from you over the years about how to actually interview people and create a good podcast. What are some of your tips on how to interview well? I have a blog post we could share about lessons learned from doing 500 podcasts. You've now done 500? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay, holy <laughs> matter, that's a lot. A good interview is a good conversation. And so the interview itself has to be something that you are fascinated by. Like I'm fascinated in this conversation. If you're bored during conversation, your audience is bored too. And so... Would you get the sense listening to All In, as an example, is that's the conversation they would have if no one was listening? That's right. That's what you want to do. You want to be a fly on the wall of people. Some interesting people. What All In figured out is it's informative and entertaining. It's immensely entertaining. And you feel like podcasts are your best friend. So podcasts are such an intimate medium. My First Million has also done a phenomenal job. Sam Parr and Sean Purry, they're really close friends. And you feel, even if you've never met them, that you're close friends with them too, that you're exposed to that intimacy and, and that's entertaining and fulfilling and you're also learning something. And so I think most podcasts try to be too much informative, but hey, you, you got to be entertaining as well. I feel like for a while, you had these ones that got really well produced and they have lots of sound effects and this and that and these other things that came in and obviously that's expensive and takes a lot of time to produce it. And I don't know about you, but I don't think that's necessarily negative, but it doesn't seem like it's much of a positive either. If you're doing a true crime podcast or you're doing some sort of real storytelling... That makes sense. Yep. If you're This American Life, sure, that's awesome. But yeah, if you're a business podcast, if you're a tech podcast, you want this to be a fascinating conversation and let it speak for itself. There are a number of tech podcasts that are too well-produced, in my opinion. It's too forced. Take all that stuff out. I just want to hear the conversation that they're having. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Now, you know the last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? You already gave one answer, but now I'm excited to hear your second answer. Yeah, so my first answer was to make commitments early and find that it builds optionality. You chain yourself to can set you free. My other bad advice that I think people give too much is to really focus on being internally motivated or intrinsically oriented. 
mean, I think we've had this great reorientation. The guidance should be, you should do what other people tell you to do from you should do what you yourself want to do. And I think that's been a positive reorientation to some degree, but I think the pendulum has swung too far to this idea that I should always pursue my passion. I should always enjoy everything that I'm doing, that the goal in life is for me to feel happy or connected at, at all times. And really, I, my true self, and only I knows what I should do. Back in the day, religion was more prominent. You would go to someone who served the role of a therapist, and they would contextualize your feelings in the context of serving society or serving this broader mission and help you rationalize them and shape yourself to fit society. And now we're so focused on the opposite, shaping society to fit ourselves. This thing is too egotistical. Yes, too egotistical. But also, I think there's this idea of short-run happiness and long-run happiness. Short-run happiness is what feels good in the moment. Things must feel good at all moments. First, long-run happiness, this idea of looking back at your life and the things that you accomplished and the commitments that you made and the set of relationships that you had. I sometimes think they're more at odds than we think. Often, long-run happiness requires a sacrifice of short-term happiness. It requires some suffering, as Catherine Boyle put recently in a blog post of how we don't want to suffer at all. But a lot of the things that we're most proud of is a small example is in order to become fit, you have to work hard. It was that phrase, everyone wants to be fit, but no one wants to lift those heavy ass weights. Um, (laughs) There's all sorts of places where that requires. It's like, you want to be successful, you have to work late nights, you have to sacrifice things. And so I think by being more externally oriented, I'm not saying, hey, only focus on status or what people think of you, care only about it, but thinking about what your partner thinks, thinking about what your best friends think, thinking about what the people that you respect think, it's a way to get out of yourself. I don't think ourselves have all the answers. I don't think looking inwards has all the answers. I think there's this great symbiosis between sort of your community, serving your people, serving a mission, serving society, and serving yourself. And I think we've over-rotated too much on needing to figure everything out via interiority in a way that is not natural and not how most people figure things out in society. And I think more people can benefit more from being more externally oriented and folks on external, uh, how they can serve other people as opposed to just focusing on how other people serve themselves. Not just be selfless, but also trust a little bit less one's internal guidance of what's going to make them happy. There's a famous thing of Dan Ariely, I think, or someone says, hey, to know whether you're in a good relationship, ask your friends because you can't really trust your gut. You're too biased. But your friends who've seen you interact for months and years, they'll have a pretty good assessment. I think having a sense for long-term happiness, in some ways, it's complicated in the same way that trying to trade stocks is complicated. It's pretty complex. There's a lot of things to model. And so in some ways, it's better to buy or hold (laughs) or to outsource it to other people who can think more soberly or less biased. And so similarly, when thinking about long-run happiness, trying to time the market or trade on an individual level, I would have less trust in that. How's that for some advice? I think that's really interesting. When you think about happiness in general, there are some people who just have an extremely high level of baseline happiness, and they might deviate from that. Occasionally, something maybe really bad happened, but they're generally at a very high level. And then there's people who are at a relatively low level, and again, they might deviate occasionally something really great happens or something like that. How does your advice change depending on the person that you're talking to? I've known you for years. You seem, at least outwardly, an extremely happy person every time I've talked to you, but you may have a different calibration of what your baseline is. I think I'm a pretty happy person, so I can only give advice to people like me. But I think there are a lot of times where I thought I was unhappy or really annoyed at something, or there was this, I ascribed this greater meaning to something when actually I was hungry or I hadn't worked out. 
<laughs> something in my body chemistry that just wasn't working, but I didn't realize what was going on. And I think that actually happens to a lot of people. I think a lot of people don't sleep well, don't eat well, don't exercise, or don't do these very basic things that make them irritable or annoyed or unhappy. And then they blame other things in their life that actually have nothing to do with some of those core reasons. So one way is to set a proper foundation. And then also, in general, some people are just more anxious than other people. And if that was me, what I would do is I would really reflect on the past anxiety I thought I might have. Hey, I've been anxious a lot about how certain outcomes would happen. Did those outcomes happen? No. Okay, maybe I should either be less anxious or if I can't control it, just don't trust it in the sense of let it happen. But it's okay. Bad feelings come and go. That's not the end of the world. I'll be baseline level anxious or unhappy and I could still have a really fulfilling, meaningful life. That's okay. Also, in the basic context, I certainly don't think I'm an anxious person, but on an airplane, if there's a ton of turbulence, I get anxious. Me too. I get really scared of turbulence, even though I know it's really irrational. It's only happened to me a thousand times in the past and every other time it worked out fine, but I'm still get a little jittery and a little worried about it. You just have to be like, okay, this is how I'm going to cope with this particular thing. Even though I know it's not rational, everybody's got something like that somewhere. Totally. People often give cope a bad name. We need copes to get through the day. And so I'll be scared of every turbulence. And I also know it's okay. to. Be. Yeah, that's who I am. Yeah, I'm a little scared. Don't talk to me about my innermost feelings during that one moment of bouncing up and down in the sky. And related to this, stoicism comes into play a little bit. Some people critique stoicism and they'll say, hey, it's just a cope. It's accepting how things are and you're not willing to change them. And I think the wisdom is knowing when you should actually change something and not be okay with a certain thing. And when it's actually totally fine, it's better, it's more prudent, it's smarter to just accept, hey, we're just going to have turbulence on airplanes and it's no big deal. Yeah. In some ways, there could be something to decide whether I should change or not, like whether I should live in the same city or not or something. If you actually affirmatively decide to stay rather than just letting it happen to you, if you say, oh, actually, I like living in this city, I'm just going to stay living here for another year or another five years or whatever you decide in your head or something like that, then it's even greater because you've made a recommitment to it. Yeah. I think part of adulthood is just realizing that you can't do everything and decisions are path dependent, but it doesn't mean you should delay them. And I think people struggle so much to make decisions because then they say, okay, but that takes this option off the table. And I think adulthood is taking options off the table so that the options that you do pick, you can fully dedicate oneself. And that's full circle on this conversation. I love it. Okay, I love that. Well, thank you, Eric Turnberg, for joining us. Full of that. I follow you at Eric Turnberg on Twitter. I subscribe to your Substack. I listen to at least three of your podcasts. So I definitely encourage all of our listeners to engage with you there. There's still a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Oren. I've modeled my career in some ways after yours. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, I'm grateful for your friendship and mentorship. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of DAS is brought to you by SafeGraph. SafeGraph is geospatial data for physical places. Check it out at safegraph.com. And by Flex Capital. Flex Capital invests in data companies like those we talk about at World of DAS. Check it out at flexcapital.com. <laughs>